With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Would you say you're friends with Elon Musk right now? Like if you called him, is he going to pick up the call? I read the book and I get a little stressed out. Have you gotten that reaction as well? Yeah, no, it's funny that you say that. Half the people are like, I'm totally inspired. I'm going to go out and do all this stuff today. And then a lot of people seem to be like, good Lord, I haven't done anything with my life. This is so depressing. So I've got Ashley Vance on the phone, who I feel a little bit competitive with, and I'll explain why in a second. But Ashley wrote uh, this great biography. I mean, the ultimate biography of Elon Musk right now is called Elon Musk, uh, Tesla, SpaceX, and the future. Ashley, welcome. What, what's the subtitle of the book? I always forget subtitles. <laughs> it's Tesla, SpaceX, and the quest for a fantastic future. The quest. Did, did you make the te- subtitle? I sort of feel like you made the title and then publishers come in and make subtitles. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's one of these ones we kept battling with. Um, you know, we were going to even do something different for the the name of the book. And, and so there was a lot of back and forth on that one. It might have been a bit of a, a committee job on the, the subtitle. <laughs> like, I sort of feel they think, OK, we're Elon Musk is great as the title, but let's think of what the search engine results will be on the subtitle. And then they kind of come up with some random thing. Yeah, it was a tricky one. The the um you know, the publishing industry, which is largely based in New York, they had kind of a, a different view of Elon than Silicon Valley, where I live. And they were kind of convinced that a lot of people still didn't know who he was. And so it was, um, I guess it was sort of an effort just to flag up a few things. The overseas publishers, they kept wanting to put PayPal in there as well. Um, so I think that was kind of the battle that was going on. Um, and we'll get to that in a second, but I sort of feel like the PayPal story is so old and so overtold, like who cares? Like that's not, (laughs) that's not why Elon Musk is interesting. And I'm sure you'd agree. Um, but, but I want to talk, so I want to talk about several things just to kind of set the stage. I want to talk about Elon Musk, of course, because he's such a fascinating person and I'm even more fascinated after reading your, your page turning book, which is why I feel a little competitive. Like, you and I are both in the entrepreneurship section of Amazon, and we keep battling back and forth for like first or second slot in that category. <laughs> Although you've been mostly winning. So I've been like, I'm not going to have that guy on my podcast, but the book, the book is so good that I had to have you on. 
Oh, uh, you're nice, man. <laughs> and 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 so I want to talk about Elon Musk. I want to talk about you and your process, and you know what you learned through this process. And then I just I want to talk about uh, the the fascinating future we're heading towards. So, yeah, sounds good. Okay, so first off, you. Why did you think um, of writing a book about Elon Musk? And how did you get? I mean, it seems so hard to me. Like I like writing books about myself because then I'm the only one who has to inter. I have to interview, and I'm right here. <laughs> but you had to interview like a thousand people to write this book. Like, how did you get permission from not only Elon but like so many different people, including people who necessarily maybe didn't like him? Right. Yeah. I mean, that was that was definitely the hardest part of of doing the book. I mean, when I first set out, I had done a cover story on Elon for Business Week. And, um, you know, we'd gotten along pretty well as far as kind of the reporter subject relationship goes. After he saw the story, he thought it was it was fairly well done. And uh, so, you know, and I'd seen Tesla and SpaceX and had my first encounters with Elon. And that's really when I decided I wanted to do a book. And, and I went to him and kind of hit him with that idea. And he totally rejected it. I mean, he was pretty nice about it, but he said, you know, he either wanted to do his own book or, and also he, a few people had asked him before and he turned them all down. And so I had this kind of, this dark moment where I was like, well, is this going to be possible or not? But I decided to just go out and do it anyway. And and I just started interviewing people. I mean, it seems kind of hopeless at the very beginning, but um, you keep going and you get a couple really good interviews under your belt and then it seems like it's possible. And, and so I did that for about 18 months. I interviewed 200 something people. 200 that, people. Jesus. That was, that was just the first batch and that, and that Elon came back after all that. And he called me at my house one day and said he was either going to make life really horrible on me basically by, by uh, telling people not to talk to me or he was going to cooperate with the book. And so I quickly tried to talk him into the second option. And, um, you know, much to my good fortune, he he agreed to cooperate. And then it was this whole new round of interviews. I probably did a ton of interviews with Elon and then another hundred or so people after that. Wow. So so a couple of points there. One is he didn't totally agree with you. He said he wanted, from what I understand, he said he wanted to see the book before it went out. And that is like, as uh, I'm a writer, you're a writer, that's like a definite no. Like you can't risk writing an entire book and then having him say, nah, I don't want this out there. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, he un had unfortunately run across this biography on Larry Ellison where the writer from The Economist had let Larry put footnotes in the book and Elon really liked this idea. <laughs> and uh, I mean, part of me was thinking, you know, Elon, he's got this very unique writing style and I actually thought it would be sort of interesting to see his take on everything. But from like a practical standpoint, I thought the book would never get done and that his footnotes would be longer than the book. And then from a journalistic standpoint, you know, there's just no way I could let him see that. And, and, um, I went to him and I was, we had this dinner and I was prepared with this huge speech to sort of win him over to my side. And I only got five minutes into it and completely to his credit, he said, okay, let's just do this thing. And so he didn't get to see it. So, so, but on the flip side, let me ask you this, and, and we're getting into the nuts and bolts of it, which may, maybe people are interested in, maybe they're not, and we'll, we'll get into other topics. But I would think a book with Elon's footnotes would be 
totally fascinating to me. Like, what did you consider letting him write footnotes? Like, he didn't say he would change your text. He just said he would write footnotes. Yeah, that's right. He said he would leave the text alone. I mean, to be totally honest, yeah, this was, uh, you know, as a journalist, the idea of letting him see the book before it came out um, was kind of a non-starter. But then when he brought up this idea, just because... Uh, I definitely didn't think of it as a gimmick. I mean, I thought it would actually be really interesting to yeah. see see how Elon thought. Uh, honestly, and so I was torn on that. I mean, I spent about a week kind of being like, okay, which way should we go? And then the thing that I learned, though, while I was doing all my reporting was I, mean, I really did fear that the book would never get done, that Elon would take so long doing the footnotes that they really would be longer than the book. You know, he, he gets caught up sometimes on... I understand he wants to be very factual about things, but it'd be something like, oh, he he had a ham sandwich at this this meeting and he'd be like, you know, 600 words about why it had to be a turkey sandwich and not a ham sandwich. And, well, and I, I sort of saw it going off the rails. But but, but but you you said an interesting thing relating to that, which is um, you said he has a very unique writing style. And, you know, obviously he's not written any books. I don't, I haven't seen... I mean, he's written maybe like one or two articles out there. But what was really interesting to me, and you describe this in your book, is he sends these company-wide emails and reading them, he really does have a very particular writing style where it's very spare and almost uh, uh, aggressively brutal, but brings, up, <laughs> but brings up points that are really like, huh, yeah, he's right. Like his, like his email about no acronyms. Uh, was like, yeah, that's a fascinating thing to think about, something that a million people think about every day. Yeah, no, you describe it really well. I mean, there's this this very utilitarian sort of logic to his emails where you're completely right. I mean, it comes off, there's the acronym one, there's another one about uh, that I got my hands on where he's telling the employees why it's a bad idea for SpaceX to go public. And of yes. Course, like all the employees want to cash in and get rich and he wants to go to Mars and, and it's sort of hard to make a, to go public with a company that, that sort of has that as its mission. And so he goes at great lengths to explain to everyone why it's actually in their financial best interest, you know, not to go public and why. And then he starts veering into, and this is how you should be saving money for your family anyway. And, and if you do these three things, you'll end up just fine. And, and I mean, it's, it's, it's such a unique kind of uh, heavy handed, but, but, it does make sense approach to explaining these things. And you see it a little bit too. And, um, you know, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but you, if you look through Tesla's press releases and SpaceX press releases, you can tell when Elon has written those, like the ones about uh, when Tesla put this like steel underbody on the car and they broke the safety test and all this stuff. I mean, that comes straight from Elon. Yeah, well, and that's interesting you bring that up. And and again, I keep feeling we're, we're veering from the the broader topics, but he, he's been in, he's running these three companies, uh, Tesla, SpaceX and SolarCity, all of which are um, dramatically changing their industries in the way that, you know, Steve Jobs changed industries with Pixar and Apple. And yet Elon, as opposed to maybe Steve Jobs, he's involved in it feels like from your book, he's involved in almost every aspect, including staying up Sunday night writing press releases. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the people want to draw the comparison with Steve, but, you know, I mean, I think he used to show up at Pixar once every couple of weeks and, and sort of 
give his high level opinion on things. I mean, Elon is down in the muck. There is there's a woman at, at SpaceX, Gwyn Shotwell. She's the president. She does kind of run the, the you know she runs the day to day operations and and is overseeing an awful lot. But I mean, Elon knows everything that's going on at the company. He still deals with a lot of uh, approving hires, any kind of large purchases. He's doing design stuff. He, you know, I mean, he, he knows everything that's going on at both companies. And he really does, um, between SpaceX and Tesla, I mean, he splits his time completely evenly, including living half the time in Los Angeles and half the time in Silicon Valley. So, so, and you mentioned that about SpaceX, that basically he said he wanted to create the space, the Southwest Airlines of space. And in order to do that, he really learned everything. I mean, he's probably the world's leading experts on rocket science now. Maybe I'm making a stretch because he doesn't, you know, he's not like a, a, a hardcore in the rockets engineer. But you would mention he would stop someone in the hallway and they would think he was testing them. But really, he, he was asking them so many questions. By the, but by the time he was done, he would know 90 percent of everything they knew. And. I found that fascinating, like probably more, like you say, Steve Jobs was somewhat off, you know, off hands on Pixar. He let, uh, you know, John Lasseter and Ed Catmull take care of a lot of the things. But Elon Musk really seems like down in the muck, like he's getting his hands dirty at SpaceX. It's true. I mean, I think it's kind of a curse and a blessing for the employees. The There's tons of things where he has made... I mean, he's making the design decisions. If you look at, at Tesla, for example, with the Model S and the door handles, they go flush with the car. You, you know, this was an idea that Elon was dead set that he wanted and the engineers did everything in their power to kind of take it out of the prototypes and Elon would get really pissed off and say, look, where are those handles that I wanted? Everyone knew it would be this crazy engineering challenge. Um, and then ultimately it, it was, and it probably delayed the car, but it's ended up being kind of one of the most striking features. One of the Tesla guys says, you know, if it's a gimmick, it's a gimmick that worked. And you see the same kind of thing at SpaceX where he's, he's actually making decisions about, you know, the, the baffle inside of this fuel tank should be placed over here and, and people will kind of fight him on it. He'll come up with his reasons. And as best I could tell, he bats, you know, over uh, over 500 on these decisions. <laughs> and I love also that, you know, having a newcomer in the space industry after like 50 or 60 years, you know, you had the Boeings and the Lockheed Martins and so on, but it did allow him in a way to come in in this Silicon Valley style and and kind of create things homemade and reduce prices by 90% because they were so used to kind of government overheads that he's been able to create this phenomenal company that does things so much cheaper because of his knowledge of all the processes involved in making a rocket. Absolutely. I mean, his big, a huge advantage at both Tesla and SpaceX has been that he got this sort of clean slate in two industries that had grown very staid over the decades. One of the most depressing parts of doing the book for me was learning a ton about the aerospace industry and how little it had progressed from kind of the heyday of the 60s and 70s. And you would, I'd go to these launch centers and the equipment in there looked like it was still straight out of the 60s and 70s. It looked almost like uh, some sort of like antiquated laundromat. Um, and, you know, it's not even like computing systems, it's like mechanical switches they're using for all this stuff. And and so SpaceX came along. There'd been no pressure on any of the incumbents really to change what they were doing. For and 60 years. 
Yeah, exactly. And and I mean the like if you look at the Soyuz capsule today, I mean it it looks like it's from the 1960s, and then you see what SpaceX has just been unveiling with its Dragon capsule. And I mean it's a lot more like you would expect from a, a spaceship in this day and age. You've got the the huge flat screen touchscreens, these like leather seats and all this stuff. I mean, if these guys are going to be stuck in there for weeks and months, you might as well make it a little bit comfortable. But uh, you know, SpaceX, I think what they, what Elon tends to do at every company is, is just take on more and more and more of in-house production. And so like SpaceX today builds 90% of its rockets from scratch in Los Angeles, whereas um, its competitors like United Launch Alliance, you know, I've seen them boast that it takes 12,000 suppliers for them <laughs> to build a rocket, which they sort of bill as this great job creation thing, but but it's hardly as efficient as what SpaceX is doing. So, so Elon, you know, um, has this insane persistence, but so do you. I mean, that's one of the reasons why <laughs> you did this book and, and, you know, halfway through you got his permission and then continued with the other hundred interviews. Where does your persistence come from? And, and again, what inspired you to write this particular book and your Business Week story about him? Well, I'll start with the second part first. I, you know, I, I, for some reason, I, I guess I started out, my first jobs were in the technology trade press, and I got thrown as a cub reporter into covering semiconductors and servers and, and companies that were manufacturing stuff still in Silicon Valley. And, and so I always had kind of a soft spot for companies that made things. And especially these last, I'd say, five or six years being in the Valley, I got really cynical <laughs> about where things were heading. It was just so much about consumer services and entertainment apps and advertising and, and all these people that might have been kind of chemists and physicists and mechanical engineers in the past were becoming computer scientists totally trying to develop algorithms to make you click on ads. And, and so I was already depressed about that. And then... In 2012, when Elon really started to hit his, his stride with all of his companies kind of at once, and I went to visit them, then I was like, this is the guy. I, This is what I've been looking for. I mean, these, this factory is in the middle of Los Angeles mass-producing rockets. This factory is in Silicon Valley pumping out cars when we're told that America can't make anything anymore. And then Elon ended up being much more interesting than I had originally kind of thought. I mean, I pegged him just as, as sort of a one note kind of techno utopian kind of guy, but he, he was much more authentic and, and um, kind of low key than I had expected. And it was a really good interview. And so that's when I decided I had to do it. And then the, the persistence thing was kind of funny. I mean, I think I like to consider myself like a pretty dogged reporter generally, but this book was on a level I had never kind of experienced before you go through all these highs and lows. But honestly, I kept hearing so many stories about Elon and how he doesn't take no for an answer on anything that I started to kind of use that against him as like a judo move. <laughs> and I just decided that, um, you know, what would Elon do in this situation? He would, he would not take no for an answer and he would just keep pushing on. So I decided to do that. And I think, um, I don't know if you like, I, I mean, I feel like he respected it on some level or I just wore him down. <laughs> and so, so, um, what, what would you say you personally learned? Like, so you met him of course, many times you talk about having dinner with him many times and hanging out with him. What did you personally learn from, from him? I came away. And, 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 and I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm going to add to the question. You've obviously, uh, met many people from the Silicon Valley industry based on your writing background, 
what separates out Elon from uh, everybody else that you met? I'd say Elon, he's this mix of smart, he's good at marketing, he's good at the business, he's good at the technology, he's good at the design, he has a level of hustle that I've never seen before. What does that mean? I mean, that's in sort of a good and bad way. I mean, he is willing to, he's relentless and he treats business almost like war. And so, you know, losing a deal, getting burned by him, um, he doesn't take or get you know if you burn him he doesn't take any of that stuff lightly i mean this this is this is war and if you if you're his competitor he's going to do everything in his power to win and and this i mean this is on a level you know i've interviewed almost every top ceo and they're all very driven characters but he is driven on a level that i've never seen before and i think um it'll it allows him to accomplish lots of great Things, but you you see where he overpromises a lot, or he does very risky uh, financial maneuvers and things like that. You know, I mean, it, it gets a little dodgy. Well, <laughs> sometimes let's, let's talk about it because obviously he's one of the he's now proven himself to be one of the greatest entrepreneurs of all time, and uh, but and yet I'm I'm unsure. I go back and forth on his money management skills, so. <laughs> Uh, I've seen I've seen horror stories and I've and and you don't quite get into the horror story aspect although you do a little bit I mean you do you, you do very much so but it's not quite as horrible as I've seen in other places where I mean I've seen stories as, as bad as like he was totally broke and living on people's couches while Tesla was you know dying to go public so what what's the actual story did he risk it all uh, at some point so he'd already made you know, you mentioned he made two hundred fifty million dollars, I guess, on PayPal, and then he threw it all into these three businesses. Uh, how low did he go? I mean, he went low. There's a there's a the middle chapter of the book is is this two thousand eight. That's when everything yeah. collapses on him. You've got Tesla's going bankrupt at the same time that it's struggling to get the Roadster, its first product, out the door. Um, SpaceX is, is kind of, it's had three rockets blow up, but then they have, their fourth launch is actually successful, but then SpaceX, they've got, they're trying to build all this new stuff. They're burning through money at an incredible clip and, and struggling to make payroll. And then Elon's getting divorced. And so um, not only is he going through sort of like the pain of the divorce and his his wife justine musk is like blogging about it and the press is is tearing all that up but it's um because of the the divorce it, it freezes his assets more or less at the same time and and all of his assets are on paper and, and so well i mean it becomes this huge problem you know by the by around like august and september of 2008 he is living he's he's living um at a friend's house he's cannot pay his bills anymore he's taking loans um from jeff skull and and he's living at jeff skull's house the the one of the ebay uh billionaires and um and then he ends up actually starting to date this new woman Tallulah riley and she's living at this borrowed house with him (laughs) and then as the year progresses 
the investors, some of the one investor in particular at Tesla basically is trying to throw Elon out of the company by not funding another round. And, you know, in the background of all this, of course, is like the financial crisis. And, and the idea of like an electric car company is insane when the regular car companies are crashing. And so they need to raise money and, and they can't. And, and so Elon's people at Tesla, employees are, are the, the high-up employees are paying some of the payroll, and it's just a complete and utter disaster. I mean, he, he that $220 million that he made through PayPal, through SpaceX, Tesla, and SolarCity, he'd burned through it all at that point. Oh, my God. So now, I guess, again, it was the financial crisis, so we all kind of thought anything could happen. Like, every single company in the world was sort of up for grabs. And uh, was he actually worried he could go to zero and just start from scratch? He thought he kind of thought he was going to have to pick one company. He thought he was going to have to either pick Tesla or SpaceX, and and SpaceX is kind of his baby, and so that's probably where he would have gone. He but but, very, if he but if he had a fourth launch and it failed, was SpaceX over? Yeah, SpaceX would have been done unless there was some crazy miracle that i mean it would have been done that that was the last money that they had was for this fourth launch and if they if they had had a fourth explosion as well i mean confidence was already kind of running pretty weak in what they could pull off and, and, and there's no way nasa would have been interested in them and I'm, I'm trying just because i feel so much for him for that moment in time i'm trying to figure out what a worst case scenario was so let's say the four let's say he threw everything into spacex and let's say the fourth launch exploded, would he have been able to sell the IP to like Boeing and at least pull out $10 million for himself or was it just over? I think at that point, SpaceX would have just been scrapped for parts. I mean, it, you know, the at that point in time, the other aerospace companies did not take SpaceX seriously at all. And this would have just proven to them that it was a bunch of yahoos who didn't know what they were doing. And, and Tesla would have actually been the more valuable company because just the electric drivetrain technology they had come up with was of interest to companies like Toyota and Chrysler. And, um, you know, that, that would have actually maybe got him a little bit of cash. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I still, I, I can't imagine, I mean, I can because I've, I've been through in a much smaller way, those experiences of throwing everything at one idea. And if, with me, it didn't work out, but with him, it worked, not only did it work out, it worked out with all three companies, like all three companies by themselves had made, have made now made him a billionaire and have changed the landscape of how America views its technological future. Like, did he expect all three to be successful after that? You know, I still don't think he would have thought in 2008, it was it, even when he sort of does this miracle and gets funding for the companies. I mean, you know, he says in the book that he still kind of thought um, the likelihood of all three companies surviving was really, really low. I mean, essentially, I think he thought maybe one would be lucky to emerge out of all this. And and this kind of continues. I mean, it's it's only, it's, you know, from 2008, it's, it's sort of like around 2012, really, where things finally start to look bright again. I mean, SpaceX did okay because once they had that fourth successful launch, NASA gave them some huge contracts, and then all these commercial companies came in to say, "Hey, you're really cheap. Let's put up our satellites." And 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 so they got a pretty big backlog of orders. Um, but you know, for Tesla, they 
were still having problems with the roads there, couldn't get the Model S out. And then Solar City had a ton of work to do to really build up um, from scratch this business. So, no, I mean, I think he, he, he likes to live on the edge, man. <laughs> well, so, Solar City is interesting because uh, just the natural trend of technology is that more and more percent of uh, the energy of sunlight is being stored in these solar panels. So he's he's kind of riding a technology trend and he just had to ride it out until it economically um, worked. Whereas Tesla and SpaceX, he's literally inventing technologies so that, that haven't been worked on in years. And uh, not that SolarCity is not incredible by itself. And, and they're all kind of, that's the great thing too. All these three companies are related. Did he ever consider about just merging them all and going public with all three? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's the probably not just from sort of like a purely financial mechanics point of view, but it's interesting to me now. I mean, the, the, um, the overlap between the companies, like for example, he used to fight these individual sort of political battles, um, and would lose in Washington pretty badly because the aerospace companies obviously give tons of money to the politicians and so do the energy companies and the car companies. And he was the small fish in all of this stuff. When you look at like what I kind of think of as like Elon Inc. Now, um, you know, this is a guy that between the three companies employs upwards of 20,000 people. He's got factories in California, Nevada, um, all obviously huge states. He's got business in Florida as well. And so he, he and he's also the rising star in technology. So he has become this huge political force. I mean, if you're a politician, you want to help Lockheed protect the jobs in your state. But on the other hand, you definitely do not want to be on the wrong side of history on this one. And, and going against Elon is sort of the equivalent of going against Steve Jobs these days. And, and you come out looking kind of foolish. And so um, even though the three companies aren't completely interwoven, you see that interplay. You see him taking these big materials advances that SpaceX has done, applying those at Tesla. You see the Tesla battery packs being used in conjunction with SolarCity. And so it's, it's sort of this incredible universe he's built. And, and, and you, you never give quite kind of the bullet-pointed list, here's what makes Elon Musk a success. But what would you say would be, the ten, let's say, the five to ten things that stand out in your mind after you've done all this research? What makes him a success? What and and not just the fact that he has this enormous IQ where he can learn everything very quickly, blah blah blah. But what what can I do to emulate some of some fee, some aspects of Elon Musk where I can increase my chances for success, or the listener can increase their chances for success? I think the biggest thing I took away was I was somebody who set goals before, but I would set maybe I would have kind of five short term goals and maybe ten long-term goals and kind of revisit these year to year. I think what I saw with Elon is that he has this incredible, he's very clear-eyed about, he, he sits down, he meditates on what he thinks is important. And then he's identified two or three things that he thinks are, are sort of like, absolutely, um, that's what he wants to spend his life doing. I don't think I would live my life exactly like him, but it's this clarity and crispness about what he's going after. And then his absolute sort of devotion to pursuing these goals. You know, when I finished doing the book, I sat back and I said, um, I need to be much, I need to be much clearer about exactly kind of what I want to 
do with my life. And, and even though I'm not going to work um, seven days a week, exactly like Elon does and sort of give up so much of my personal life that I am going to definitely cordon off a lot more of the frivolous stuff I have been doing. He gives you like a sense of urgency in your life that I, I, um, maybe I'm just getting older, but I hadn't ever appreciated on the same level. Um, you know, just this, like this devotion to sort of living your life. (laughs) Well, well, some of the frivolous stuff could be doing the laundry. And my guess is Elon Musk never does his own laundry, but you might do your own laundry. No, I mean, he's lucky, you know, he's got like a team of nannies helping out with the kids and, and he's got people bringing him food and all of that. But it's, it, and so, and again, I, I, you know, I, he's got these advantages and he's, he's also, he's making huge sacrifices of what I think a lot of people would consider like a normal life to kind of go after what he's doing. But at the same time, you know, I think we can all grab a bit of that. And and I certainly came away energized and inspired um, by the way, he, you know, he lives his life. And I've seen, I mean, the cool part about Twitter and everything and people reading the book is that I've seen a lot of messages back from people that sort of feel the same way. And so, uh, you know, all that part's kind of rewarding because that's what I wanted to bring out. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. 
ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See Hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I read the book and I get a little stressed out. Have you gotten that reaction as well? Like, I feel like, oh man, I should be living an Elon Musk style life. Like, it's, yeah, yeah, no, it's funny that you say that. Half the people are like, I'm totally inspired. I'm going to go out and do all this stuff today. And then, so, you know, a lot of people seem to be like, good Lord, I haven't done anything with my life. This is so depressing. I, 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 it's like so intimidating kind of this guy's only 44 and he's done all this stuff. Um, so I guess I can go either way. <laughs> but like, but like take your life, for example. So it reminds me a little of uh, Michael Moritz, who used to be a journalist and then became one of the most famous venture capitalists and one of the most wealthiest venture capitalists of all time. 
So, so clearly here's a case where someone was a writer and a journalist for a long time, but then he got so much exposure to all these people who are like Elon Musk, including Michael Moritz, I believe, funded Apple uh, in the beginning. Uh, do you ever feel now like, oh my gosh, I'm feeling this itch to get to be more a part of that Silicon Valley scene? Um, I would say, to be totally honest, I sort of felt that at other parts in my career when it was like, God, I, you know, I, I cover so many startups and I feel like I'm starting to get a pretty good sense for who's legit and who's not. And, and I would definitely entertain the idea of wanting to become a VC and not a poor journalist having done the book and it's done decently well. And I've just really, um, it actually has kind of reinvigorated me to, you know, just want to pursue writing more than ever. And it's, it seems to be opening up some other opportunities as well. And so, um, I think the tech press tends to be probably too cozy in Silicon Valley with the companies. And you see lots of journalists now going to either work for VCs or become VCs. And so there is that temptation. Um, but maybe I'm just destined to be, uh, you know, scrape away <laughs> as a muckraker. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm going totally out of order. I, By the way, I research and I come up with a list of questions and then I never look at them. So I'm going totally <laughs> out of order. But it seems to me, my, my, my initial worry when I um, saw your book, not when I read it, but when I saw it and just the cover is, you know, the picture of him, it's a very good picture of him. I kind of thought, because you had gotten his permission more or less to write this book, that this was going to be a somewhat sycophantic like a book about him. But you really kind of present both sides of the story. Like the reader doesn't come away. I mean, I think overall the reader comes away liking Elon and being impressed by him. But it's not it's not um, what the expression cut and dry like. Uh, uh, I don't. I, I can definitely see some downside of him. Just like you, you feel that in Walter Isaacson's bio, biography of Steve Jobs. I mean, that's what I tried to do. I definitely didn't want to do some giant puff piece. I think ultimately Elon is the hero of the book, and I'm certainly uh, an enormous fan of the companies and their technology. But I mean, Elon, there's you can't BS it, or right? I mean, what's the point? He's he's a super complicated guy. He's got a lot of good stuff about him and a lot of bad stuff. And um, I mean, the one thing I was pretty proud of is that there's almost like nothing that's, there's only like a couple anonymously sourced things in the entire book. And I was able to get people to really talk kind of truthfully about how they felt about it. I, I think also, like if you look at anybody in there, like, so Elon's been under a microscope in, in, in his twenties and his thirties and his forties. And I think if you look at anyone in their twenties and thirties, nothing's going to come out all roses, but the internet of course is, is always willing to judge every moment. So I think you had to deal with that a little bit as well. Yeah. And then, I mean, look, the book's 300 something pages long. I dug into his childhood, going back to call all his people that he went to school with going back to grade school. I mean, you know, I think if any one of us had a book like this done on them, of course it would turn up some unsavory things. And, and, um, I actually, so Elon, um, you know, he's sort of taken umbrage at a couple of things in there, but, but to be totally honest, he's had much thicker skin than I ever imagined about this. <laughs> That's great. Cause I, I guess he's had to have hit like the 2008 you describe now, obviously it's a 2008 that turned him into ultimately a billionaire, but you describe as him having gone through so much. And like you described it earlier, that 
that's got to burn something into your soul that you that you keep with you in your interactions with others and and, and with life in general. Yeah, I mean, he. I would say Elon can go to some pretty dark places, and and um, I would even say something like, I think I the you know a journalist is just sort of like a kind of a gnat <laughs> to Elon, you know, something he would. Um, he, he's faced much, much worse things than whatever I could dredge up in the book, at least sort of to the kind of viability of his life and all that. And so, and, um, and, and I give you, I give you credit also for not dwelling on the personal aspects of his life as much. I mean, you had to a little bit because that's just his life, but you didn't kind of devote more than really like a few pages to that. Yeah, there were some things I wanted to get into, just like the relationship with his his ex-wife and his current wife and things like that. Some of them were just good stories, like when he meets his second wife for the first time. It's this very like Cinderella kind of scene. And and I wanted to give people a flavor. You know, I get into sort of like these crazy wild parties that he has and things like that. But I tried to stay away from things like his kids and, and stuff that to me was just um, not really where I wanted to go. Well, I like how when he meets his second wife, you know, the, the this model is being introduced to him and he blows off the model and keeps showing Tulula like pictures of rocket ships in this club. <laughs> so that's definitely but but it reminds me of, of, of a question, which is um, so I have two questions on this. One is I, I, I sort of I, I was reading an interview recently with Steven Spielberg and Steven Spielberg basically as a kid uh, liked making movies, liked UFOs and fantastic things. And he made tons of movies for himself. And then lo and behold, as an adult, he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. And Elon Musk, clearly when he was a kid, he liked computers, comics, and uh, you know rocket ships like any boy and computers. And clearly he took this to an extreme. This is what he, he the, the, the seeds you build as a boy from the ages of six to 18, those are the things you can really pursue and, and make Tons of money and success on. It's remarkable. Yeah, you know, he seems to have read maybe from the age of like six to fourteen. I mean, quite possibly like every science fiction book <laughs> that had ever been written, and and I think a lot of people read those and get into them. Elon completely appears to have, you know digested these and taking it as some kind of calling that, that he was meant to go save humankind and fight, fight these space battles and things like that. And, you know, when he was 12, he designed a video game that was exactly kind of that concept. And yeah, it's funny. And then he kind of goes through his life. I mean, the PayPal stuff and, and his first startup zip two, which was kind of like Google maps meets Yelp. I mean, those were such, almost like tangents. I mean, it, he just got swept up in the internet for a little while. And then once he made a ton of money, that light went on and he just said, you know, now I can go chase everything I've ever wanted to go to. Well, well, let me ask you about that because on zip two, he made $22 million. So let's say in California, he would have ended up with like 12 or 13 million after taxes. That's clearly enough. He, and then he moved to LA and hang out and became like an LA type of guy. Uh, that clearly was enough to spend the rest of your life just hanging out and having fun. But instead, he he, he risked it all on X.com, where, again, he kind of almost lost it all. Right. I mean, that is how Elon lives his life. W would, uh, you have, would you have done that? If someone gave you a check for $12 million and said, that's your money, just put it in the bank, 
would we ever hear from you again? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, the, you know, he easily could have done what every other entrepreneur could have done, which is get a bunch of VCs to fund his second company and, and take um, a decent stake, but not kind of a majority stake, right? But then, I mean, it's it's what made all this other stuff possible. It was because he was the largest shareholder in X.com, which became PayPal, that you got to remember, I mean, he was like kicked out of PayPal after being CEO as the largest shareholder. And that sort of like left a, a bad taste in his mouth. But that's really what made him filthy, filthy rich is when, when eBay bought the company. I mean, then he was the one who really cashed in on the whole thing. And, and that taught him this lesson of... I'm going to fund my next companies even more and I'm going to have even more control so that nobody can ever throw me <laughs> out of these companies again. And so he, he sort of goes the opposite direction of where I think most people would go. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm learning a couple of things so far. One is um, kind of really figure out how your childhood interests grow up with you. So obviously he didn't... Um, uh, do these ridiculous science fiction things, but it borders that. Like it's heading in that direction. Like he wants to colonize Mars, which is a very Arthur C. Clarke uh, phenomenon. And uh, the second thing is, is c control is very important because he on things that are very important to him, he doesn't want other people to make other people who might not be as smart as him to make his deci the decisions for him. Uh, so that that's very important. And then uh, he's not afraid. I would never say he's multitasking because again, they all seem sort of linked in some bigger vision, but he's able to, uh, as you mentioned in the book, compartmentalize and really focus on SpaceX, Tesla, and SolarCity and what their needs are for the, for the moment without being you know dragged away from one to the other. Uh, and then he's also got this incredible ability to he's not going to get involved in something unless like i don't know i can't tell from the book how smart or stupid he is like anybody he's smart in some things and, and probably stupid in others but he's able to take the things he's interested in and make sure he learns uh, 90 percent of what he can learn about them so that's the first four things i'm picking up yeah those are all spot on the compartmentalization thing is really interesting as well, in particular that you kind of brought that up because hardly anybody notices that you know not only does it let him do stuff like tesla a couple days a week and spacex a couple days a week and to tackle this problem and that problem but like in the 2008 crisis um you know what i found was that he's somehow able to stay very, very rational. I think a lot of us, if we're going through a divorce and the companies are crumbling, sort of the emotion of, of it all would, would creep into the situation. He seemed to, to sort of be able to say, look, okay, here's the problem. This investor is trying to screw me over. Um, this is sort of what I'm going to focus on for the moment. How do you play this chess game? You know, and, and then SpaceX is over here and it's sort of like, how do you play this chess game? I think at least for me personally, um, I sometimes get swept up in the, the emotion of it all and it definitely clouds my decisions. But he's he, he, like, as far as the compartmentalization goes, I mean, he's um, incredible at that, almost to a fault. You know, I think that's when you hear a lot of the employees talk about his lack of empathy and things like that. I mean, I, I think he sort of got you as a person over here and then there's you as an employee. <laughs> and, well, and, and if you're messing up as an employee, you know, all the other stuff goes to the side. That's I, what he's focused on. I wonder if that lack of empathy comes from 
not necessarily Elon having lack of empathy, but just when you make a lot of money early on. And then like, let's take right now, it's, it's 2015. So he's had, he's been a, a multi-millionaire success for uh, a, probably about 20 years now. And I think when you have, uh, you know, obviously 99.999% of the human race doesn't have that success. And uh, it distances yourself a little bit. So you're not always aware that you're being uh, lack of empathy. I wonder how much is related to that or does he really have, is he really on some spectrum where there's uh, empathy missing? I think he's kind of wired that way a bit. I mean, he was always, since his childhood, he was always just like a little bit different from everybody else and sort of that like kind of know-it-all kid that uh, people weren't real fond of growing up. He... You know, he's in a lot of ways, he's kind of surprisingly down to earth when he comes into a room. He doesn't have any handlers and, and he doesn't seem to sort of like be expecting everyone to know who he is. But but certainly to your point, I mean, he's not short on ego and is like completely convinced, you know, probably because of all the luck and success that he's had that he is completely right. <laughs> does, he, does he ever get introspective like in a, a kind of meditative or emotional way? He, you know, there were a couple times where he would, it was pretty funny. I mean, you know, he had this really rough time with his dad and he would start dwelling on that a little bit. And, he, you know, the tears would kind of well up in his eye, but he would shut it off pretty quick. Um, he, when he talked about being bullied as a kid, the same sort of thing happened. And he would, he would sit there with me. He's like, I don't know, how do people become like that? And, and he would think about it, but he would turn that stuff off pretty quick. The weird thing to me was that you start talking about man, mankind being wiped out by a virus or something like that. And then, oh my God, he's, he's like welling up <laughs> with emotion. And, and, and those were the times that he really seemed to, uh, to be distraught. And so, you know, I think I talk about it in the book a little bit. This is this weird sort of empathy that I'd never encountered, which is like this mankind scale empathy. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wonder if that again happens because the other worries, like how am I going to pay the mortgage, disappeared for him really early on in his life before he even had a mortgage. So, so, and again, it reminds me of guys like Jeff Bezos and, and Steve Jobs, where they're able to start thinking of like the much bigger problems in, in humanity because for 20 years they didn't have to worry about the other kind of micro problems of humanity, which is, you know, the, the, the difficulty uh, a single parent might have in paying their bills and so on. There's, yeah, there's definitely some of that. And then it's funny, you know, Justine Musk, his first wife said, there's just something about him where it's just like money kind of like follows him or finds him. And, and, you know, she was just, even with all these high risk things that he did, she was just never worried that, um, that they wouldn't be able to, to pay the bills. Although obviously in 2008, they sort of get there, but it's good to have billionaire friends to bail you out. <laughs> well, well, and that, that's another point. Like, uh, so we, I think we mentioned four or five points of his success, but another point is, um, you know, there's this saying, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. It seems like in every company, he hired the best possible people. So, so, and that, that strikes me as so critically important. Like I'm, I'm a programmer by background and I know just from that experience, uh, being a good programmer versus being a bad programmer or a mediocre one is something like a hundred to one difference. Like one programmer matches like maybe 30 to 100 bad programmers. And it seems like he understood that uh, in each industry very well. 
I'd say that's completely correct. And he, it's pretty funny because people talk about Tesla and SpaceX having this huge turnover and Elon burning through people. But, you know, when you look at the, the top executives at both companies, a lot of them have been around for the whole 10, 11, 12 years of the companies. And they are these immensely capable people. And, and when he hires engineers, um, you know, I, I was struck again and again and again, especially on the SpaceX side. There would be these 25-year-old kids that Elon had personally interviewed and whatever he saw in them, he, you know, he found the special ones because they were the most capable people I've ever talked to, people that could machine a rocket engine during the day and write the control software for it at night and and doing this as like a 25 year old on an island in the middle of the pacific without many resources for you right you, you talked about i forget his first name now but davis who uh worked for the company young guy who steve just, davis yeah steve davis that was just his life like living in a tent on this island or whatever uh uh in, in having the time of his life living like uh, you know, a, a hermit. Like, yeah, like Gilligan. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was incredible. But then the other thing about having the five people around you is, you know, you mentioned several times this close relationship with Larry Page, and then I was fascinated by, uh, like the, the Google secret apartment in Palo Alto, where he and Sergey and Elon Musk would meet for lunch and just like brainstorm on the most outrageous ideas for saving the world. And yet these are the people most qualified to solve these problems. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I would kill to be at one of those dinners and was lucky enough to interview someone who was, uh, and, you know, they sit there talking about <laughs> refueling stations that orbit the earth and you can fly your electric jet up to and, and sort of get across the world much quicker than ever before. And, and this guy's sitting there watching this dinner and he thinks they're kind of joking around. <laughs> He's like, you guys aren't actually going to do this, are you? And I said, yeah, this, <laughs> we're going to build this together, you know? And, and, and when I interviewed Larry Page, I mean, he said they, he and Elon would trade back like a thousand ideas and then sort of settle on two or three that they were going to go after. And it's just, it's just like a thousand outlandish ideas. And I mean, it's kind of interesting we're in this age. I, I never know if I'm making too much of this, but like you said, you look at, at Bezos and Page and, and Elon, um, the wealth that these guys have amassed and the fact that they are doing like these government scale type things is, uh, it's like incredible. I mean, these guys are sort of just chasing their dreams. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's amazing, and again, it's it makes me jealous. Like I want to be, I, I want to be the type of person to be at one of those dinners, but I'm just not. So, and here you are, like, so you've written a, a best-selling book. I'm sure you're going to have other books uh, coming up. What's 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 next in line? Well, I haven't totally settled on exactly what I want to do for the next book. I kind of gotten back into Business Week and and writing my stories. There's um, there's potential for sort of a movie deal around the Ceylon thing so but we'll see where that goes and um, and why yeah. do they have why do they have to talk to you about a movie like why can't they just do the movie on their own I guess you could go a couple different ways I think um, in this particular case there's a lot of interest in like the SpaceX story and I've done so much of the reporting that nobody else had ever done before and and so um, you know if you I think basically they want it saves them a lot of time to sort of option the rights to to these stories and and push things along. Um, let me see. I have more questions here. I'm just I'm I'm trying to figure out more things I could learn from Elon's story in terms of success. 
what what do you think are some of the other aspects of success that I'm that I'm missing here that are key to Elon? Well, I mean, you know, it's it's um, I really do think he is this very interesting, multifaceted sort of guy. Yeah, Steve Jobs gets a lot of credit for that. You know, obviously being good at marketing and being good at design, but Elon does this on a scale that's from the technology to the business decisions. This is a guy who's writing the press releases. He's he's like launching lawsuits against the government. He's he's just he's coming up with the design for the cars and the spaceships. He just does a bit of it all. I mean, some people they want to know if they can sort of mimic it and and be like Elon. I mean, I think. Um, I think it would be, you know, it's sort of difficult to try and model your life directly on him. <laughs> I, I have an idea for you, which is to just write about that uh, that secret apartment in that that Google has, where they all meet for lunch, and it's but, just it's one set, so it's easy, so it's cheap to make, and it's just one lunch after another, where but, like there's different characters each lunch, but they're all like spewing out the most incredible ideas. That's actually a really good idea. I would love to to convince Larry to let me camp out there for a year. Why don't you do that? All the stories. No one's written the biography of Larry Page, and I think next to Elon, he's the most incredible entrepreneur of our time. Yeah, Larry and Sergey are both pretty fascinating. They are they are they play things very close to their vest and are um, you know they do far less press than Elon. It's been it's been difficult to get time with them. And uh, uh, sorry, I'm just thinking of uh, I want to figure out the, the smashing last question to ask you. But uh, would you say you're friends with Elon Musk right now? Like if you called him, is he going to pick up the call? I would say our relationship is, is frostier. I don't think we were ever friends. We had a really good rapport. Um, even, you know, in the, the thick of it, I mean, it was actually kind of a nice thing for me that Elon puts up some walls and, and made it very clear that we weren't friends. And so that helped me as a reporter. Uh, you know, when I finished the book, he said that it was really accurate and it was well done. And then just when some of the press kind of built up some of the more salacious bits in the book, I mean, he didn't react as favorably to that. <laughs> yeah, because they're going to pick up on... Um, all the personal stuff, like the the Mary Beth Brown, yeah. uh, Justine, everything, which which has two sides to every story, but but the press does what it does. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, I mean, I hope over time I see all these people copying me and him on on Twitter, sort of talking about how they were inspired, and you know, most of the reviews were very favorable and everything. I would like, I mean, ultimately, it's not really my job to be his friend or or you know, and whatever he will react to the book is how he'll react. But um, I would hope things sort of end with, with us having kind of still a productive relationship. Yeah, it seems like it'd be fun to be friends with. I'll tell you one quick story and then, and then, and then we'll end. Uh, I know you have a uh, other stuff going on uh, and thank you. I really appreciate the, the time you spent um, in uh, 2000, uh, Odeo Resi, who was Elon Musk's uh, roommate in Wharton, I guess, uh, I helped him sell his first company. I was like the the deal maker. I introduced him to the company who who he sold his first company to for about twenty million. Oh, so, okay, yeah, Dan was quite the character, man. Were, were you able to interview him? I did interview him a little bit, and then and then actually, Dan had participated in a. Uh, it was like. Uh, 
Vogue or someone, Esquire maybe, did this big feature on Elon, and Adeo had said a couple of things that I don't think he was supposed to say, and then Elon cut him off from the wow. press after that. <laughs> that. So, well, again, Ashley Vance, author of Elon Musk. If you just search A-S-H-L-E-E Vance and Elon Musk, you'll find it on Amazon. It really was a page turner. I'm, I'm more of a general nonfiction reader than a biography reader, but I finished the book in two days. It's a very fast read, uh, even though it's like, what, 400 pages or so? Yeah. Um, and I highly recommend it. And look, I'm looking forward to you being on the fly on the wall in that Google apartment. So so get it done, man. It's a great idea. I will do my best. Oh, oh, <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Wait, my final question. And yeah. you don't have to answer or not. But you mentioned in our emails yesterday, uh, Tim Ferriss mentioned something about me. So I just want to know what it is. I, you know, well, I'm a religious listener to his podcast and, and read his books, but I, I love his podcast. He said something about my good friend James, you know, and, and then uh, I can't remember exactly the context that it was in, but uh, you seem to be on, on the good list. So Good. I like to have as many friends as possible. <laughs> thanks again, Ashley. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, man. Good luck. Bye. Bye-bye. For more from James, check out The James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less. And it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now. And it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.